friends, it is so good to, to be together. I've just been struck by that this morning. Like, our paying attention to God and what it is that he wants to do in our lives, that's the most important thing we could be doing right now. Amen? I'm just struck by that. I never want us to take that for granted. And we continue to do that, paying attention to what it is that God wants to say to us, what he wants to do in us by studying his word. And we just started last week this series through the intriguing Old Testament book of Esther in a series called Faith in Exile. Why? Because we want to ask the question, what does it look like to follow God, to have a relationship with God in a world that seems so chaotic and so disconnected? And there are a few better field guides, if you will, than the Old Testament book of Esther. And we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. It's a lengthier passage, so I'm going to pray now, and then we're going to read the text as we go along, as the story unfolds, and invite the Holy Spirit to bring these truths to bear on our hearts in such a way that we would leave this place and not say, oh yeah, that was a good service, but what a great Savior. Amen? Let's pray together now. Heavenly Father, I thank you that every person in this room matters to you. Every person joining us online, wherever they may be, matters to you. And you care about the things that concern us. And we ask today that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would illuminate your word, your truth to our hearts, that we would find where our true identity lies. And that you would help us to live in light of who you have created us, called us, and redeemed us to be. No matter how easy or difficult the circumstances around us may be, may we leave here this place remembering who we are in Jesus Christ. And so to that end, I pray that you'd speak to us. And for those who do not yet know you, I pray that today they would hear your gospel and be saved. We ask this together in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Well, if you've ever been to or heard one of those inspirational university commencement speeches that they give at graduations, chances are you have heard one of these three mottos. They're the top three slogans you are most likely to hear in an inspirational speech. And the first is, Never give up. The second, expand your horizons. So you're graduating university, you're like, oh my goodness. Four years and $80 million later, and that's what I needed to hear. But the third most popular slogan you are likely to hear is... Be yourself. This is the mantra of modern society. After all, we live in the age of authenticity where the highest value is placed on being real, authentic to who we are. Oftentimes when you're making a decision, a friend might even ask you, well, is that really who you are? Is that job really a reflection of who you really are? It's like the motive to which we appeal to make like huge life decisions. 
But the glaring question is, who are we? And how do we know? It is the question of identity. Where do I get my value? Where do I get my worth? Where do I get my purpose? Many things are true, but what are the truest things about me that then determine the direction of my life and the decisions I make in life? I suppose this morning if we were to do an exercise and you were to you know, open up your phone to like a notepad or write it down and list what you believe are the most important things about you, I wonder what would go on your list. It might be a mix of good things and bad things. For some, it might say, I am successful. I'm happily married. I love my job. I suppose for some of us, we'd say, well, the truest things about me are I'm wounded. I'm divorced. I'm finding work tough right now. Whatever that list would be, full of good things and bad things, will reflect the things that are most important to us, or at least the things that we think about the most. The reason I ask that this morning, it's an important question, because your sense of identity comes with a script. It shapes the, the story that you tell yourself and the decisions that you make. Well, in many ways, the chapter before us in the Old Testament book of Esther, chapter two, is a chapter about identity. And it gives us lessons where we should find our identity and where we should not find our identity. The book of Esther is the story, the ancient story, of how the courage of one Jewish woman, how she became queen of the Persian Empire and saved an entire people from genocide. It is remarkable. But it is a story with a lot of twists and turns throughout which we find lessons regarding how we can learn to live out a life of faith in a world of exile, a world that is disconnected from God. And at the beginning, the author is showing us very clearly what this woman, Esther, will be up against. It's an empire ruled by a king who seems to hold absolute power. A world where the fate of people is not decided by love, law, and justice, but by ego, selfishness, personal agendas, and manipulation. And the question we ask of the story is, will Esther be lost in the shadows? Or will she shine in the darkness? The answer, in, in part, will depend on where she finds her identity and how it shapes her choices. Now, friends, here's why this matters for us. The world around us right now is dark. The world around us right now is broken. The question for you, for me, and for all of us together is, will we get lost in the shadows or will we shine like a light in the darkness? Well, the answer will be determined in part by where we find our identity and how that shapes our choices. And so with fine detail, this, the author of Esther paints here in chapter two a portrait of the main characters that highlights what we'll call a tale of two identities. And these portraits not only help us better understand the story, 
these portraits help us better understand ourselves. And in telling us about these three characters, King Xerxes, a man named Mordecai, and this woman named Esther, we actually learned this morning, I want to give us three headings, and then I'm going to spend the remainder of our time giving you three charges today. This portrait teaches us about the false self, the true self, and the war between the two. First of all, in this portrait of a man named King Xerxes, we see a portrait of the false self. That is an identity apart from God. As this chapter opens, we have a portrait of a man who, in one sense, had it all. And yet he lives out of an understanding of himself and the world that is completely opposed to the design and purpose of God. And there are several details at the beginning of this chapter that not only bring this portrait to life, but actually reveal some of the wrong ways that we get our own sense of identity. I want to note these three. The first is this. The false self is often defined by wounds. The way in which we get our identity at times is often shaped by wounds. That was certainly the case for King Xerxes. You need to know that several years have gone by since the wild chapter that we read about at the beginning of the book where there was this extravagant party thrown for his name and his glory. And the years following that party were not exactly great for the mighty King Xerxes. History tells us that he actually lost a military campaign against the Greeks and their famous Spartan warriors. The defeat was humiliating and it also depleted the royal treasury. It was a total failure. No doubt his ego was wounded. But to make it worse, it's been several years after his extravagant party in chapter one, which peaked in this moment where the, the drunken king demands to exploit his wife by showcasing her beauty to the drunken crowd. But she refused on that day, and he was wounded. And here as chapter two opens, as the curtain opens on the stage, he's nodded in good place. In fact, I imagine if he had a phone back then, he's just like scrolling, you know, looking on his Instagram, like, oh, like what do the people think of me? Like, where am I at? How do people view me? And what does it say he does? Look at verse one. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti. Stop right there. Here in verse 1, we are told that he remembered Vashti. Vashti was his queen. Why did he remember Vashti? And what was it about Vashti he remembered? If you didn't read any farther, maybe you thought he was lonely. It's like, oh, I miss Vashti. I just long for her company. Remember Vashti, the long walks on the beach? The late nights over tea when I allowed you to come in from the harem, you know. We played Scrabble together. <laughs> what did he remember? What did he remember about Vashti years after this party? Well, we're told there in verse 1. He remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he decreed about her. He felt humiliated by her. And years later, he's rolling it over 
again and again in his mind. We have a portrait of a wounded man, and he nursed this wound. Oh, how this reflects some of us in more ways than we would like to admit. For some of us, our identity is often shaped by the wounds we receive. The story in our mind is, I'm a wounded victim. Now, sometimes these wounds that we experience are the result of real wrongs, sins, and injustices. And the Bible never asks us to pretend that they didn't happen. And the Bible never asks us to pretend that they don't matter. Instead, the Bible offers healing. More on that later. It's true that these things happened. But are they the truest things about you? Then on the other hand, maybe we're like Xerxes, where nobody actually really sinned against us, but our ego was wounded. Life isn't going the way that you thought. You didn't get the pay raise. The career path that you're on isn't exactly what you wanted in the beginning, and you begin to throw a little bit of a pity party for yourself, or you're like King Xerxes just thinking over, I can't believe those people humiliated me in front of those others. They did this to me, and it becomes an identity statement. I am an avenger. I am a justified avenger. And I think it's an important detail to draw our attention to because if we do indeed build our identity on woundedness, that's not how God created us. Unlike Xerxes, we were made to glory in God. And if we're like Xerxes in this regard, if we try to find glory in our own reputation, our own career path, our own status in society, it will lead to misery. For many, identity is shaped by wounds. But notice how he responds. Rather than repent and turn to God for healing, he allows his wounds to wound others. Or if others have actually sinned against you and wronged you, rather than allowing those real wrongs, bringing them to God, we often end up wounding others. But it goes further. We see a second way in this portrait in which we can create this false identity, a false foundation for who we truly are, and that's by being controlled by the opinions of other people. You've all heard it said that if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything, Well, that is certainly true with King Xerxes. So notice, instead of turning to God for the advice, the counsel, the wisdom and direction in life that he needs when he's got a wounded ego, he actually turns to all the single guys. Look at verse two through three. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, he's like, hey guys, what do you think I should do? Well, we've got a great idea, King Xerxes. Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. It's worth pointing out, as we did last week, that King Xerxes, through the whole story, never makes a decision apart from the influence and opinions of other people. We see it from beginning to end. 
Which creates kind of an irony because on the one hand, King Xerxes is like the most powerful person in the world at that time. And yet, whoever has his ear, we find that he is easily swayed. Well, this suggestion is well received by the king and they round up all the young eligible women throughout the Persian empire in verses two through three. And to be very clear, this is not some kind of optional beauty contest like Bachelor, the, you know, the Persian edition. That's not what's happening here. These women were conscripted into the king's harem. One suggestion, and he swayed. What he truly needed was God. His advisors said he needed another woman. And he defers to them. And we will find, like here and elsewhere, he is often defined by what other people thinks he needs. Is this true for us? Is our sense of identity shaped in a large part by what other people think we need? Hey, I'll tell you what. You need this, Tim. You need that, Tim. Like, oh, really? Maybe that's the part I'm missing in my life. Maybe that's the, maybe their opinions are the foundation I should build my life upon. But it's a false foundation. We see an image of a king here who is shaped by wounds, controlled by others, and thirdly, driven by appetite. If you read the history, Xerxes' life following his humiliating defeat was actually a life of indulgence. And the council knew how to appeal to him. Verse 4, it says, Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And what does it say? This advice appealed to the king. And he followed it. Hey, that's a great idea, guys. I love what you're pitching to me here. Let's do it. And so as the story goes on, it's one woman after another. It is a performance-based, manipulative relationship. He's not loving them. He's using them. For many people, being true to yourself means being defined by your desires. We're often asked that, like, what do you want? Or we use the language of, like, what does your heart tell you? Because we esteem desire so highly in our culture. But which desires? Because if we're all honest this morning, our hearts are full of conflicting desires. You're like, I want to be a good citizen, but I also want to punch that guy in the face who cut me off at that corner. Ah. What if your friend in the car is like, hey, you do you. All right, I'm going to park the car. I'm going to like punch him in the face. I'm not, that wasn't a confession. Is this a safe place? <laughs> We're full of conflicting desires. Like I, I, I want to exercise, but I also don't want to exercise. Ah! So which one's the real me? The portrait that the Bible paints of the human heart is that we were originally created beautifully in the image of God. But because of sin, we are tainted. And this is reflected in our own desires. Just because we want something doesn't automatically mean it's good. So which desires should define us? Which desires? So we see a portrait of a king that raises questions for us. Are we being shaped by wounds? Is that the core of our identity? Are we being controlled by other people? I am what other people think. Or are we driven by our own appetites. Whatever I want, that's who I am. 
It's important to notice this portrait because it leads to the next. In contrast, that's a portrait of the false self, and we need to ask those questions this morning. But secondly, by contrast, we learn of another character, and in the description of this character, we are given a hint of the true self, an identity found in God. This woman, Esther, is introduced through a man named Mordecai, which anticipates their joint role in the unfolding stories of how the Jews will be saved in the end. But I want you to note that the way that both he and Esther are introduced in this story is absolutely key. And it teaches us two lessons. First, our identity must start with God. That's the true self. Our identity must start with God. Look at verse five. Notice how he's introduced. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish. You're like, what does that have to do with me or anything? Well, here's why. I'm glad you asked. In Hebrew narratives, it is common for the controlling aspect of a character's identity to be emphasized by placing it first in the sentence. So by introducing this man as a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, the story then is being rooted in the unfolding narrative of God's plan in the Bible where he chose a people for himself, a people who were insignificant that he chose for himself to reveal God to the nations around them. That was the story of Israel. And so though God is actually hidden in this book, he's actually silhouetted. And with this sentence here, we are reminded of the big picture. Where does my identity start? Before I write anything else on that piece of paper, I write, I'm created by God. Our identity must start with God. Friend, if your list does not begin there, it's a false foundation. It could even be a good thing. I'm a mother, I'm a father, that's great. But that's not what saves you. That's not what redeems you. That's not the truest thing about you. It starts with God. But secondly, our identity is sustained by God. It doesn't just start there, it continues. We've got to take that identity, the truest thing about us, and then we've got to bring it in to the rest of life because life will not always go the way that you thought or the way that you hoped, or the way that you expected. Even the people of God throughout history face difficulty and trial and temptation, as you will, if you haven't already. And so it says in verse 6, Mordecai, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. This is a key part of the story. The people of God are to remember who they are while they are living in exile, while they are living in a foreign land. Even if the circumstance that you're in was not something that is a result of your choice, even if the circumstance that you are in is not your fault or something you crafted or created, we still have to remember who we are. Our identity starts with God and it must be sustained by God. So that if, even if everything else changes, 
and your experiences are disorienting in the world right now, the truest thing about you is what God says about you. So you're meant to read verse five and say, whatever happens with Mordecai, what is of first importance is his relation to God. What both he and Esther must remember is who they belong to and what story they are a part of. After all, that's exactly what it meant to be one of the Jewish people, to be first and foremost called by God and set apart for God. That's what you read in Scripture. What you read about is not men and women who are perfect. You read about men and women who are called out by God to be a part of his redemptive plan. And oftentimes they are given new names which represent their identity so that whatever happens, they remember the truest thing about them is what God says. Church, the same is true for you. The same is true for me. You were created by God. You were created for God. You are not your own handiwork. We are the handiwork of God. So that even other good things on your list, they should never be the first things on your list because otherwise, even if they're good things, maybe those good things aren't going so well and you begin to lose them and you start having a small little bit of identity crisis like I did in England. When we moved to London, my first six months was consumed by trying to to plant Reality Church London on the side while working for an Anglican church in central London. And my role there was as an assistant while we were able to get the church plant off the ground, and I was hardly preaching. And again, this became an identity thing for me, because like, I'm a preacher, and like, you know, 10 years in LA, like, I'm a preacher, who are you? I'm a preacher. And few moments in the church calendar highlighted that than Easter Sunday. Because Easter Sunday is like, all right, preacher's going to preach. And there I was in London, our first Easter, and I wasn't preaching. And I had this moment as I sat in the old, dare I say, ancient pews of that Anglican church, and my friend was preaching Christ, and I was like, oh, I'm not preaching. Who am I? And in that moment, I turn and I look, and there's this beautiful stained glass of resurrected Jesus, and he's like, I am the resurrection. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me and was like, Tim, Jesus is alive whether you're preaching about it or not. I was like, right, right, yes, yes, right, right. Might not seem like a big deal for you, but it was a big deal for me. There might be good things, but they're not the first things on the list. Our identity starts with God. Our identity is to be sustained by God. And the good news, friend, is that you don't need to like convince somebody else of your purpose and your significance and your importance in this life or even secretly fear that you aren't esteemed or valued by other people because your identity starts with and is sustained by God himself. But there's a problem. The name Mordecai does not reflect the God of Israel. Mordecai was a pagan name taken from the Babylonian gods. And so what we find in the beginning of this book is a portrait of someone who's actually very steeped in the culture around him. He has a pagan name. We will learn next week that he actually worked at the palace. And you think, wait, shouldn't he be in Jerusalem? 
Because after the children of Israel were actually brought into captivity, 70 years later, they were allowed to return to Jerusalem, and some did. But many did not. Why? So we ask, has he forgotten his true identity? Has he ignored his true identity? And this actually sets us up for the main character and the final heading before I give you three charges. In Xerxes, we see a portrait of the false self shaped by wounds, controlled by the opinions of others and driven by appetite. In Mordecai's introduction, we're given a glimpse of the true self, an identity that starts with God and is sustained by God. But in Esther, thirdly, we see the war between the two. Esther is introduced in relation to him as she reflects the same tension. And the text shows us this by giving us two names. She's the only person in this book that actually has two names. Look at verse seven. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. She is the girl with two names. And many believe that this is the author's way of depicting a woman living between two worlds. On the one hand, you have her Jewish heritage, and on the other hand, you have the Persian court. Her Jewish name, Hadassah, actually means righteous, with an exclamation mark. We want to write that down. Righteous, exclamation mark, righteous. But on the other hand, Esther is taken after the goddess, the pagan goddess, Ishtar. And by mentioning both her Persian name and her Jewish name, we are being showed two identities, the struggle between the two, a struggle that will actually be brought into sharp focus as the story goes on. Even here, look in verses eight and nine. Who's she going to identify with? What is she going to do? When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken into the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Here we have a young woman conscripted against her will into the king's harem. She is not responsible for the situation that she has been brought into. However, she is responsible for how she responds. And in this moment, we're meant to ask, well, what is she going to do? How would the people of God live in exile? Now, a hundred years earlier, you can read other accounts in the Old Testament, like the book of Daniel, which is a story of when the Jewish people were first brought in to captivity. And what do we read about? When we hear the story of those families, the Jewish men and women, taken captive. Well, when you read the story, we learn that they protested. Daniel and his friends refused to eat of the king's diet. They maintained their worship practices. They declared their Jewish identity. 
Daniel and his friends were careful to obey the law while in captivity, even at great risk to their own lives. In the book of Esther, however, there are more questions. Look at verses 8 through 11. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Esther and Mordecai had no choice about the circumstance, but they did have choices to make within their circumstance. In fact, there's a play on words here when it talked about the Jewish people earlier in this chapter being carried away. It's also the same Hebrew word for when the women were carried away. And for that reason, many of the commentators believe that Esther's story is almost the story of Israel in miniature. Like, they're carried away into a situation that they never would have chosen. The question is, how will they respond? And so we wonder, why did Esther not protest the beauty regiment? Why did she not maintain her kosher diet? Why did Mordecai tell her not to reveal her identity? Why did they not maintain practices of Sabbath and worship? Look at verses 12 through 14. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments. Just sit with that for a minute. Insanity. You're like, what were those beauty treatments? Oh, they tell you. Prescribed for the women. Six months of oil and myrrh with six months of perfume and cosmetic. Six months. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there, and in the morning, she would return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. What is happening here? Some have tried to say that this was all planned from the beginning. That Mordecai had actually told Esther to go into the Persian palace as a spy in hopes of protecting the Jewish people. If, if you watch like the kids' versions, oftentimes that's the way that they present it. And you know, she's there and she's like, when she goes to the king, it's to play Scrabble. And she comes back, she's doing a Bible study with all the women at the harem. You know, like that's usually the way that it's portrayed. However, there are several problems with that. First, we are not told that that happened. We are not told that there was a, a plan between Mordecai and Esther. Second, and I suppose more importantly, there was no threat against the Jews at this time. That comes later. That comes later on in the story. At this point in the story, revealing her Jewish identity would certainly not cost her her life. After all, King Xerxes, his anger over his previous wife resulted in her being removed as queen, not destroyed. But what is clear is that she did not rise to a place of prominence by living a distinct life. You see that with the case of some other Old Testament characters. It was through their distinctiveness that the rulers took notice. That is not the case here. And so we see verses 15 to 18. 
When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. At this point in the story, we do not see the conviction from Esther and Mordecai that will come later on. And this is an important point to make. Instead, we see a tension between identities. There is a risk that they, like many others, will be carried along with the culture. Now, many of us don't like that kind of a story. We're like, wait, we want the heroes of the Bible. But when you read the actual narrative of the Bible, often you will find the men and women there are a little more messy than we might like to think at first. To be honest, they're a little more like us. And so one of the commentators writes this, the questionable character and spiritual fidelity of Esther and Mordecai were noticed even by the first translators of the book who attempted to exonerate them by adding explanation. But certainly the temptation to compromise Jewish religious and ethical principles would have been an important issue for the Jews of the exile. It is no less a temptation for Christians today living in a society that is becoming increasingly hostile to biblical principles. Because of course, like Esther and Mordecai, we all live with the temptation of being carried along in the culture without conviction. That's the war between the two. And maybe some of us are actually there this morning. There is this problem with what we might call a cultural believer, where faith is something that you kind of inherit. Like, well, you know, my, my family's a Dutch family from the East Coast, so like, they're part of the Reformed tradition, so I'm good. Or like one of my relatives, well, my grandfather was an Episcopalian minister, so therefore I'm in. I'm like, yeah, it doesn't really work that way. For some of us, we just, it's more subtle and low-key. We just kind of hide it. We just kind of conceal it in the shadows. Some of you are literally on the fence. You're like, well, I'm not an atheist, but I'm definitely not following Jesus. Or some of you, this morning, we might say, I belong to the God of the Bible, but don't tell anyone. I don't really want my, my coworker to know. I don't want my neighbors to know. If I bring that up, they're not gonna, they're gonna think less of me. They'll think I'm weird. They'll think I'm strange. I might be rejected. I wonder this morning if some of us are actually living in the shadows. We're not allowing the light to shine, so to speak. Friend, I wanna tell you that there's a war and there's nothing subtle about it. All of this highlights that war between the false identity, which is rooted in the world, and a true identity that is rooted in God. And these identity portraits in Esther are like signposts to lessons in the New Testament, especially the teachings of the apostle Peter, who talks a lot about Christians living out their faith in this world like you're living in exile. Because here's the truth, Brandon, and I want to give you my charges and then we're going to respond in prayer and in worship. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, 
who lived on your behalf, died for your sins, and rose again on the third day to give you new life. You are a new creation. You are given a new identity. But you will quickly find a war between the flesh and the spirit, between a false identity and your true identity amidst all the pressures of the world. So what do we need to do? Why do I highlight the false self, the true self, and the war between the two? Well, friends, here's what I have to say to my own heart and to you. First, you and I this morning must acknowledge the war between the true self and the false self. We need to be honest this morning and admit that there is a struggle, admit that there is a battle. We must be aware of this. And so the apostle Peter says in the second chapter of his first letter, he says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. You can imagine the first readers of Peter's letter going, whoa, Everything was fine. I was just kind of going to work, like no problem. And Peter's like, hold on a minute. You are ex- you're living in exile and you need to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. The passions of the flesh that he refers to there are any passions that destroy or diminish your desire for God. Desires that keep you from him. Passions that look to created things more than the creator of all things. And so this morning, we are invited to be honest about the struggle. Maybe you're more tempted than you would like to admit to go along with the flow of the world, tempted as I am oftentimes to remain in the shadows. We need to be honest this morning. We need to confess that this morning. Be honest about the war, but allow that struggle to turn you to God because that's the second charge. Once you acknowledge the struggle, like, yeah, there's a struggle. I need to confess that. But secondly, embrace your identity in Jesus Christ. Once we become aware of the struggle, we turn to the truth of what God has created, called, and redeemed us to be. And we make our choices in light of our true identity as sinners who are forgiven and adopted and accepted. As we will see with Esther, she experiences renewed identity as the chapters unfold, choosing to identify with her people and thus with the purposes of God. And you and I must do the same. The war is real, but we win with the truth. And friend, if your faith is in Christ, here is what's true about you. In a world of exile, in a world of pressures, in a world of even our own fallen desires, Peter says, remember this. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's who you are. You can underline it for emphasis. Our identity starts with God and is sustained by God. We are not meant to conceal who we are in Christ. We are meant to reveal who we are in Christ. And in doing so, we reflect to the world what is most valuable. But why do we have this identity? You might be like me, like, man, I failed like a thousand times before. I understand. And that's why my last charge to you, church, is remember the grace of God. Remember the grace of God. Esther and Mordecai might not be the heroes that we expect at the beginning, but you need to know this. This is the story of transformation. 
Esther is portrayed differently at the end of the story than she is at the beginning of the story as her true identity is embraced. And through the process, God reawakens convictions. He gives people a second chance. Esther changes. Even when it didn't seem that she and Mordecai were walking near with God, God was at work. Why? Because God is gracious. It's a little more messy with these characters than we like to admit. They're not the heroes we might expect, friends, but that highlights this lesson. The true hero of the story is God. And the reason that he gives us a second chance is grace. They change. You know who doesn't change? Xerxes. Xerxes doesn't change. He doesn't change. He's like flat through the whole book. But with Esther, there is change. She begins to live out of her identity as a part of God's people. Regardless of how she lived in the past, she has changed. See, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that one has sin and the other doesn't have sin. We're all sinners in the eyes of God. The difference is repentance and faith. The difference is not, well, I've got a great track record, so therefore God accepted me and that's why I'm a Christian. That is not the truth. Our identity is not based on what we achieve for God. It's based on what we receive from God. And that's why Peter reminds us of this. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Why, Peter? Why are we the people of God? Once you had not received mercy, but now you received mercy. The favor we need is not from those who are in power in this world. What we need is the favor of God. And it comes to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus, like Esther, came into this world. This broken and sinful world is the world in which he grew up. And like Esther's name true name, Hadassah, he came and lived truly righteous. And unlike King Xerxes, he did not come to use people, but to save people. He did not come to bring shame, but to remove shame. And when he died on the cross, he died for our sin. And now for all those who trust in him, we are given a new name and it is righteous with an exclamation mark because Jesus is risen and we are accepted through him. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he enables us to live it out. That means that God is the source of our identity and the true hero of our story. We do not live to find favor in the eyes of a sinful king because we live in the eyes of a savior king who has already given us his favor. So whatever your list is this morning, friends, could be full of good things and bad things. I want you to cross it all out and say the truest thing about me is this. I am a child of God. I am cleansed by God. I am redeemed by God. I am loved by God. I am a friend of God. I am free from shame. I am delivered from the power of darkness. I'm in a new family. I am made whole. I'm empowered by God. I am raised to new life. I'm an heir of God. I'm the craftsmanship of God. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm an overcomer. I'm more than a conqueror. I am a new creation. I am a child of God. That's who you are in Jesus Christ. So who wants people with a past? Who wants messy sinners? Who wants damaged goods? Jesus does. Jesus does. He says, come to me. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Because when Jesus came, he did not conceal his love for you. He revealed his love. And his love defines who you are. If you're in the shadows this morning, 
I invite you to come into the light through confession and receiving God's grace anew and afresh. Maybe some of you are on the fence. May today, this moment, be the tipping point. If you're undecided, today decide for Christ. If you have not yet given your life to Jesus Christ, believe in him now as your Lord and Savior and know that you are forgiven and accepted. Jesus is the one who heals our wounds. He's the one who forgives us of our past. He's the one who gives us the strength that we need and renews our desires. So let's bring all of that to him and watch what he will do in us as we remember who we are in him, amen? Father, I pray right now that these words that are true would become real to every heart. I pray first for those who have not yet accepted you. I pray that right now they would, that they would listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit pointing them to Jesus and that they would say right now from their heart, Jesus, you are my savior. I believe you died on a cross for me. I believe you rose again on the third day to give me new life. I believe you accept me by grace. And Father, I pray for your church. I pray for anyone who's just been living in the shadows, or maybe it's a part of their life, just living in the shadows, concealing who they truly are. God, may this moment right now, before we move on with the rest of our day, may this moment right now be a moment where they come out of the shadows into the light of who you've called them to be by your grace. Lord, if in any way we've been defined by wounds that we've inflicted on others, or the wounds inflicted on us by others, I pray that we'd find healing this morning, that we would hear your voice today saying, that's not the truest thing about you. That might be true, and I see that. But what's more true is you are the healed of God. You are the forgiven and accepted of God. May we know that right now as we respond. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Church, it's often said that our actions have the ability to reinforce our identity. And right now, I'm inviting you to respond, not just be passive or to be spectators, but to allow the Holy Spirit to work. There's communion up here available. This is a, a sign, a symbol, a seal for everyone who's put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ to declare to the world in the midst of a chaotic world and even in the midst of your own conflicting desires, if you believed on Jesus Christ, I invite you today to come up and to eat the bread and to drink the cup and say the truest thing about me is I'm the redeemed of God. It's a physical act we can do in this room. We come forward, we take the communion, we declare that Jesus is my Lord, he's my savior. We can come on the carpets, we can worship, we can kneel, we can lift our hands, reinforcing our identity that we are the worshipers of God, we are the beloved of God. And there are men and women here to pray for you. They're gonna be up here in a moment to my right and to my left. They're gonna be wearing the prayer lanyards. And friends, I invite you to come up and to ask for the Holy Spirit to bring healing where there needs to be healing. Maybe some of you need to be strengthened. Maybe some of you need direction. Maybe you need courage about a situation, conviction in a certain situation that you feel overwhelmed about. I just sense that that might be the case for some of you in this room. Come up and pray. Ask God to move. The door is open. These men and women love to pray with you and for you. Maybe it's for someone else in your family, a friend. You're like, I'm just at a loss in this situation. Come and pray and watch what God will do as we worship King Jesus who gives us a new name, the redeemed of God. Let's respond according to the truest thing about us right now.